As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10. Place your first bet on any game and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Hey, TSS listeners, very quick message from me asking if you could do us a solid and fill out a survey. The link to that survey is in today's show notes, but it's for The Athletic. It gives them a good idea of who's listening, why they're listening, uh, all that good stuff. It's only 20 or so questions. They're all multiple choice. You just click some bubbles, and then you hit submit, and you are done. You actually hit done instead of submit, uh, if I'm being totally accurate. So please, if you could, check out that link, fill out that survey. We would appreciate it. And with that said, on with today's show. Total Soccer Show. My name is Ryan Bailey. Today we're previewing the last remaining tranche of Champions League round of 16 first leg matches and joining me to do so is a man who is as graceful, rare and beautiful as a Gareth Bale Europa League goal, Taylor Rockwell. Hello Taylor. (laughs) I'm not sure any of those words uh, apply to me but I will take it and I appreciate it uh, even if you're comparing me to the man bun who can't play soccer anymore that's fine that's fine I'll take Aww. it did you see the goal though he did this sort of, he sent the defender the wrong way and when the ball hit the net it made that pinging noise that Ooh. sometimes it makes when it hits the stanchion it was a very pleasant noise All right. in an All empty right. stadium I'll take yeah. that I also I think I'm just bitter because I was convinced that Gareth Bale was going to be this like rediscover his form, be this world beater, start every single game for Tottenham, and here we are. So I think I'm just like sort of reverse bitter is all. Things don't always work out. Not so much. You can't always get what you want, as uh, Mick Jagger once said. Now, um, Tottenham, they beat Wolfsburger, the Austrian Premier League side, 4-1. That's when Gareth Bale scored the aforementioned goal. I'm going to be straight up honest. I'd never heard of Wolfsburger before. (laughs) (laughs) I mean... N- Nora, I've heard of Wolfsburg. Never Wolfsburger. Yeah, there's a, there's a second Wolfsburg. It's in Austria. Who knew? I did not know that. I felt I sound ignorant, but I'm just going to be honest about it. I didn't know that either. There we are. <laughs> I sound equally ignorant. Let's see if Joe does. Joe, Wolfsburger? Yeah, there we go. Um, <laughs> let me introduce Joe, by the way. I haven't even introduced you yet. I do apologize, Joe. How about I introduce <laughs> you as a man who is as direct, useful, and accurate as a Marcus Rashford Europa League goal? Do you like that one, Joe? <laughs> I like that. I think it's better than Taylor's uh, by a significant margin. And I also want to give props to you, Ryan, for saying tranche and, and stanch already in one show. Um, that's just great work. 
I swallowed a dictionary this morning. I apologise for that. <laughs> now, um, Marcus Rashford scored in uh, Man United's 4-0 win over Real Sociedad. I'm pleased to announce I have heard of Real Sociedad, guys. That's good. I'm well done. Myself. I'm proud of you. <laughs> <laughs> While we're talking about team names, by the way, I found this thing on Reddit, which had this little explainer of uh, where team yeah, names came from. Right? So I'll, This is really interesting. I'll read out a couple of them. Borussia Dortmund. Uh, Borussia may originally stem from the Latin word for Prussia, but the club's founders actually took it from a local brewery. So their club was named after a brewery. I did not know that. Fun. <laughs> I like that a lot. I like, I like when those sort of like random moments become institutionalized. And I, I like imagine institutionalized might be the wrong word there. But you know what I mean? That like, yeah. I like the idea of three dudes just drinking beer and being like, we should name our team after this. And now it's this, yeah. <laughs> this like footballing brand of the world over. They could have been perhaps Blue Ribbon United, <laughs> but it, it went a different way, I'm glad to say. I, I mean, um, that would have been the way to go for sure. <laughs> some others here. Juventus, uh, which means uh, uh, youth in Latin. Young people. Uh, have you seen their centre-backs? <laughs> <laughs> Doesn't quite fit, does it? Doesn't quite Doesn't fit. Doesn't quite fit. <laughs> uh, Atalanta's an interesting one. The club was named after Atalante, a heroine in Greek mythology. She's described as a virgin huntress unwilling to marry. I thought it was just from the shampoo bottle that they got the, the logo. But it actually comes from Greek mythology. Who knew that? Wait, what, what, is the, what is the goddess again? A virgin uh, huntress? A virgin huntress. She's described as a virgin huntress unwilling to marry. All right. Okay. All right, Atalanta. <laughs> I see where you're at. I like it. I like, the, the huntress part especially feels, feels relevant for the way Atalanta... I was going to say, it feels, really, it feels really like tactically apt, doesn't yeah. it? I like it. Yeah. yeah. And, and the last one on here, RB Leipzig, uh, they got the name from a goddamn soft drink. There we go. <laughs> <laughs> Lawn ball sport, Ryan. Lawn ball sport. <laughs> Ration ball sport. Lawn ball. Because we all call it lawn ball, don't I mean, who we? Who doesn't? Yeah. Who doesn't call it that? I feel like there is probably some part of England that does call it lawn ball. But that's just my perception of the English calling things funny names. I say, geez, get my shin pads. It's time for some lawn ball. What, what? Hey. There it is. It sounded real, Ryan. You made it real. You made it real. Well, uh, why don't we get straight to the lawn ball action? We're going to talk about the Champions League games coming up. Um, Atletico Madrid against Chelsea is the first one on the docket. Tete, I yeah. want you, sir, to tell me all about Atleti, how they got here, what they're doing at the moment. They're flying pretty high in La Liga, did okay in the Champions League group stage too, yeah. huh? Yeah, we talked about Atleti a little bit uh, on the stereo show last night, Joe and I did, specifically about how uh, we were asked if La Liga would still be entertaining with no Messi and no Ronaldo. And our argument was, or my argument at least, was that it might be more entertaining because we'd have more clubs doing exciting things, potentially challenging. And Atleti were in that conversation, but I kind of framed it as, ah, we know it's Diego Simeone. They're going to be very disciplined. It's two banks of four. They're not the most exciting team. I was wrong. I was definitely wrong because they have changed things up this season and we're going to yeah. get into how they've changed it up. But first, to answer your initial question, they got here by finishing second in Group A with nine points. They were behind Bayern Munich, as most clubs are, but they were ahead of RB Salzburg, another RB in there. So they uh, advanced. They are currently top of La Liga, six points ahead of Real Madrid, nine points ahead of Barcelona. But Madrid have played one more game than either uh, Atleti or Barcelona. So we would expect that to tighten up a little bit. But thus far, they are top of La Liga and they are scoring some goals. So you've got to tell me more about what they're playing like at the moment then, Tete. I'm, I'm guessing this is not the Simeone try and grind out a 1-0 and defend it kind of thing anymore. 
I mean, it may still be that in the Champions League. That that's what he did last year against Liverpool. Is he sort of changed it up and went back to the what uh, what brung him there is what got him there, and that's what they did. I think this time around they will probably stick with what they've been doing. That's at least my hope because what they've been doing is playing a three-one-four-two. Uh, they've gone with the three at the back, and then that one is Koke, and he has been the one kind of shielding the back line, but being the one who can help transition when they're in possession. He puts out a lot of fires, and they really are heavily dependent on Koke being good to go. As far as I understand it, he will be, so that will be important. But strangely, a thing I would not have said a year ago, the most important player for Atletico Madrid this season has been... Luis Luis Suarez. Suarez. It is mind-blowing to me. 16 goals in 19 appearances. Uh, It was 16 and 17, which was good for an average of a goal every 82 minutes. Uh, I read a Sidlow piece about like the exit from Barcelona and how that was not particularly pleasant for Luis Suarez and was basically told, we don't need you, figure it out. And then he did that, and then they tried to block the move last minute because they failed to put into his contract that he couldn't go to a La Liga rival. They tried to do that, but it didn't work, and so here he is, uh, scoring lots of goals and being the sort of leader that you would expect Diego Simeone would have wanted him to be when he brought Luis Suarez in. Uh, that same Sid Lopez talks a lot about how you can hear, especially with no crowd noise, Luis Suarez like directing entire sequences of plays. Of like, you got to go there, ball there, play it there, I'm moving here. Like it's, it's him moving the pieces to the extent that I believe he is directly responsible for 12 points gained this season Ooh. from goals scored or goals assisted, which is more than anyone in Spain, certainly more than anybody uh, playing for Barcelona currently. So Luis Suarez and Koke remain will remain for Koke and now are uh, the most important players for Atletico Madrid. All right, let's move it over to Chelsea then, Joe. Um, did well in Group E, already got a good result against uh, a Spanish team in the form of Sevilla, and Julian Lopetegui, of course, uh, heading them up, the divorced dad uh, who refuses to pay his alimony. Um, <laughs> Joe, what, what do we make of Chelsea at the moment? How did they get to this point? Chelsea did finish at the top of Group E with 14 points. They didn't have the strongest group, but they did well enough under Frank Lampard at that point. But that's the biggest storyline around this Chelsea team. Frank Lampard is no more. Thomas Tuchel is in. And and in the league, they've had a complete turnaround under Thomas Tuchel so far. Chelsea were in ninth place in the English Premier League when Frank Lampard... I don't know why I went English Premier League. That was a bit formal, wasn't it? It's called the British EPL. You're right. I'll just say BPL slash EPL every single time until you both want to cry. Chelsea were in ninth place when Frank Lampard was sacked. Now they're in fourth. Chelsea haven't lost a single game under Thomas Tuchel. They've only played six games as of of time of recording in the league, but they've won five and drawn one. And now they're in fourth place. They are in the Champions League spots for next season if the season ended today. That's, That's kind of ridiculous, right? Being able to turn around a team that was really genuinely struggling Thomas Tuchel comes in, Antonio Rudiger, one of their center backs, called Thomas Tuchel a tactical fox. He's come in and he knows exactly how he wants this team to play, but Tuchel doesn't just know that, he's actually been able to implement it, and I think that might be the most impressive part. So Rudiger, the guy who was frozen out by the previous manager, is saying nice things about the current manager, you say? You wouldn't believe it, would you? No. (laughs) You wouldn't believe it. Who'd have thunk it? Well, talking about the previous manager and sort of the struggles he had, uh, Joe, in terms of fitting the pieces in in this puzzle, uh, what's, what's, the, uh, what's Tuchel doing about that situation and sort of the, what's the style he's implementing? Thomas Tuchel still has the same challenges that Frank Lampard has in terms of the squad. Like, the squad is still the same. There's still tons of attacking talent there that can't all play at the same time. And it seems to me that Thomas Tuchel is just okay with that. He has no issue ruffling a few feathers. He has no issue 
playing the players he thinks are the best fits for the spots he wants them in. Right now, that's not really including Christian Pulisic, who is out with another soft tissue injury, if I read that correctly earlier today. You did. But playing... I did. Okay, thank you, Taylor. Mm. Playing style-wise, Chelsea are now in a 3-4-3 or a 3-4-1-2. It's been mostly that 3-4-3, though, which is a contrast from the 4-3-3 or the 4-3-2... Or the 4-2-3-1, excuse me, that Frank Lampard used. So in that three-at-the-back shape, Thomas Tuchel wants the ball. He needs the ball. In his six games in charge of Chelsea as of recording in the league, his team has averaged somewhere between 79 and 58% possession in each game. 79% is a ridiculous number. It's so high. Tuchel's team wants the ball all the time. Jorginho has been a key player for him already. He's playing as one of those central midfielders and the double pivot next to Kovacic. Those are both massively important players for Thomas Tuchel. Callum Hudson-Odoi has played right wing back, a very attacking possession uh, kind of offensive-minded right wing back. He's been a good fit in that spot. And then it's been Mason Mount and Timo Werner, typically underneath Tammy Abraham or Olivier Giroud. Sometimes Mason Mount is playing as that central attacker. It's been a few different looks up top, but Thomas Tuchel wants the ball, and he's letting the players who can keep the ball for him play on the field. It makes sense that Kovacic and Jorginho would be the key men uh, being in the pivot there, particularly if Koke and Suarez are the key men on the other side of the equation, Joe. Um, how about the striker, Abraham and Giroud? Do you see a, a preference there? Is it going to be the Giroud cameo kind of situation, do you think? <laughs> There's a few different options that could happen here, right? I don't know who's going to play against Atletico Madrid. Olivier Giroud certainly has the most experience of the options, and he's been he's been solid dropping into midfield at times, spraying some nice passes out to the left wing. He's done some good things. Tammy Abraham has done good things as well, although I believe he went off with a slight injury at some point in a recent game. So I don't know what his status is. We could also see Mason Mount play as that kind of highest attacker and then drop down into midfield and have Werner and Hudson-Odoi or Hakim Ziyech run off of him. So there's a bunch of different options, and I'm, to be honest, just glad that I'm not the one who has to make that call. Yeah, that's why, that's why we only get the medium-sized bucks, and he gets the big bucks, <laughs> I suppose, uh, Joe. Um, Taylor, what do you think about the, the risen of this game, how it's going to shake out? It strikes me as being a pretty evenly matched contest. Yeah, I think it probably is. I think uh, against the Chelsea of a couple months ago, I think this is probably in Atletico's hands. This time around, I think it's going to be more balanced. I think a big part of that is the situation with Kieran Trippier, which I will do my best to explain. Uh, He got a 10-match ban, I believe it was, for breaching betting rules, FA betting rules, uh, for, I guess, allegedly telling a friend to like place a wager on him moving to Atleti. That is a... We've uh, all been there. Yeah, well, it's a source of like much confusion because then there's the idea of like, well, who can you tell? Are you allowed to tell your wife? What if your wife tells somebody? It leads to a slippery slope uh, is the argument there. Either way, uh, that 10-match ban was then enforced, even though it was by the FA. Uh, I think FIFA moved to enforce it, meaning that he would have been banned. Then it was appealed. Then it was overruled, but then put back in place. And I think where we stand is that Kieran Trippier will not be playing. We'll see if there's another court ruling between now and then. Uh, mm. If he is not, then that probably means... It's uh, Simi Versalco will come in and be the more conventional right back. That hasn't been Diego Simeone's favorite thing, and I think Simi Versalco has not been Diego Simeone's favorite thing. He came out at halftime of their recent one-to-one draw with Levante, and it was actually Marcos Llorente, the central midfielder, who became their right wing back. I think that was because they were trying to get that win. They felt like there was an opportunity there. Against Chelsea, I don't think they'll go with an attacking midfielder slash central midfielder as their right wing back. I think they probably will go with Fersalco. And we will see 
even if they are in a back three with Koke ahead of them, I think they'll drop into that 4-4-2 and, and give Chelsea happily that possession and look to counter through Suarez and through uh, Correa. And I think that they will have some joy, but I think it will be a more definitive Atletico Madrid Champions League tie of defending, frustrating the opposition, and then trying to hit on the counter, trying to create some opportunities themselves, likely through Luis Suarez. So... um Joe, if that if that right channel for um, Atleti is a, is a potential um, point of interest, does that mean uh, Chelsea's left channel, maybe like um, uh, Alonso or Werner, are going to be having some some good action down that channel? I think that that lines up right. You've got Marcus Alonso, who has reemerged under Thomas Tuchel so far and has played a lot as the left wing back in the three four three or in the three four one two. Marcus Alonso is going to have to be up for it if if Atletico Madrid are countering down their right side. But right now, the the most interesting thing to me about Atletico Madrid is they're not just dangerous in one area with the ball or on the counter. They're dangerous pretty much everywhere. You've got Luis Suarez in the middle. You've got that right side that Taylor's talking about if the piece is aligned there. And then you've got Yannick Carrasco as that mm-hmm. left wing back, who's a very attacking-minded player. Carrasco's almost doing a Belgium, right? He's almost yep. you know doing what he does for the Belgium national team and playing just as an attacking player, but you know nominally a left wing back. So... There's a lot for Chelsea to keep track of in this game. I'm with you, Taylor. I think the general flow of the match is going to be Tuchel's Chelsea controlling the ball, Simeone's Atletico Madrid playing in that kind of 5-3-2-5-1-3-1-4-2, excuse me, shape and absorbing pressure and then doing some dangerous things with the ball when Atletico Madrid get it. So for Chelsea, I think it's going to be important for them to, to not pull a Juve against Porto. Can Chelsea break down Atletico Madrid's block? Can they break through the middle and pass the ball into dangerous areas on the ground? Or are they going to have to resort to just playing the ball wide over and over again? If um, Carrasco is doing a, if that's what doing a Belgium is, my doing a Belgium is when I like eat a whole box of chocolates while I'm watching Netflix at night. <laughs> <laughs> Mine was going to be making waffles at 3 a.m. So, you know, teach their own. My, mine is going to be watching in Bruges. Okay. Okay, that's fair. Uh, in Bruges, which of course has the line about um, uh, purgatory being the same as being a Tottenham supporter. <laughs> yeah. Yes. <laughs> Great movie. Great movie, and quite relevant at this time in our in our uh, lives. I would suggest. As oh, well. I love that movie uh, so much. <laughs> before we move on from uh, this game, gents, do you want to want to call? Which way do we think we want to go? Will we be that bold to give a decision at this point, Taylor? No. <laughs> no, I mean, I think I think I would have bet all the money in the world that uh, Liverpool would get past Atleti last year, and that did not happen. So I have learned to, much like the Germans in a knockout competition, never rule out Atletico Madrid. Yeah, and I want to echo that. Taylor, I think you've done a good job of pointing out what Atletico Madrid has changed formation-wise and even style-wise. I just want to reiterate, listeners, don't underestimate Atletico Madrid. They're dominating La Liga largely this year. They have one of the best defenses still in all of Europe. They're going to be very difficult for Chelsea to beat. It's not impossible, but it's going to be really, really hard for Chelsea. It will indeed. All right, gents, we're going to go on to Lazio versus Bayern. We definitely won't be mentioning any relatives of Mussolini or anything like that (laughs) just after these messages. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. This episode is supported by Season 3 of FX's Welcome to Wrexham. 
Celebrity owners Rob McElhenney and Ryan Reynolds' small-town Welsh football club has finally been promoted into League Two after 15 seasons in the National League. Dedicated staff and supporters celebrate the city's return to glory while bracing for the newfound challenges that come with being in a higher division. Will Wrexham AFC stand up to the challenges and rise again into League One? FX is welcome to Wrexham. Catch all new episodes Thursdays on FX. Stream on Hulu. Lazio against Bayern Munich. That is the uh, other game that's taking place on Tuesday at 3pm Eastern, if I am correct. Tete, tell yeah. me all about Lazio, uh, what, they're, what form they're in and how they got to this point. Second in Group F is uh, how I'll start you off. You are correct. Uh, with 10 points, three behind winners Borussia Dortmund, but two ahead of Club Bruges. More Belgium. We're doing it. Uh, two <laughs> wins and four draws, no losses is a, is a good thing if you're a Lazio fan. A plus four goal difference, the same. Less so that they are currently seventh in Serie A. Yeah. Uh, they're, I think, 40 points from 22 games. That said, Roma in third have 43 points. So it's not as though there's a massive gap, but it is maybe still indicative of the way the season has gone for Lazio, whereas this time last season, they're in that conversation for who will win it. They're in that top three. This time around, I think... It's not not a rebuilding situation. It's more of a it's a squad that's been together for a while, but is not a particularly deep squad. They don't have a ton of massive names across the board and people that can be brought in. You look at uh, Atleti for a moment, and like we didn't even mention Kondogbia, who could sub in, or Saul. They have so many different talented players. To Joe's point. Lazio, it's a bit of they have the starting 11 that they want to go with. They have some questions around their center backs, and that's going to be mostly it. And I'm not trying to do them a disservice. It's just that they are a team that know how they want to play, uh, and they trust their manager to figure it out. And that's about how it's going to go for them is my uh, understanding of their approach. Uh, they could bring on uh, former Man United legend Andreas Pereira, though, couldn't they? I mean, that's that's obviously what we're all hoping for. Uh, <laughs> I'm going to guess uh, Inzaghi is probably not hoping for that himself. Uh, what he will be hoping for is that he's got uh, Luis Alberto fully fit and ready to go. He's got Lucas Leva fully fit and ready to go. Leva came out at halftime of their most recent game, but I mm. think that may have been more of a precautionary measure. I didn't see much about him dealing with injuries or anything like that. So I think he should be back and ready to go. We'll have Lazio in there sort of 3-5-2. The confusing thing for me is that you do have Lucas Leva when Lazio build out, dropping in between the center backs, but it stays a 3-5-2. Usually it's uh, Acerbi will go forward a little bit. It's one of the outside center backs will kind of move their way into midfield so you keep the 3-5-2 shape. And that's kind of what they do. They build from the back. They have Lucas Leva drop in. They look to connect quickly. They usually break, go through the wings and then try to find the feet of Tiro Immobile if they can. But I, it's it's a very like tidy Lazio team that do very well in possession and do especially well when they press their opponents. It's what Atalanta found out recently when they were knocked out or when they uh, lost to Lazio recently. But I think if Lazio are on the front foot and really going for it, they could cause some problems. If Lazio try to sit in and keep their shape, I suspect there could be some problems for them because their back line, their, uh, their choices at center back are, are not the best. Uh, Wesley Hote gave up a penalty this past weekend. Harsh because he gets the ball. Probably shouldn't have been a penalty when he takes out, uh, I think it was Latoro Martinez. But it's also Holt that goes charging 10 yards up the field and leaves Martinez wide open to then receive a pass and then has to kind of barrel back to make a play. 
And that's about how it is for their center backs. Every time they make a play, there's then a sort of less defensible one to come. And I think they've got some questions in the offseason about what they want to do with some of the players on loan, if they want to make them permanent, if they want to bring in some new faces. But I think they're going to be setting up in a way to protect that back line. Not to say it's a terrible back line. Again, they're in the conversation for top of the table or near the top of the table. But it definitely needs some covering. I'm, I'm interested in this thing about Lieva dropping back. Mm-hmm. Uh, so when a Serbia goes forward, Lieva drops back. Does like Hote or whoever's in the middle move over? Yeah, and, yeah, they they okay. spread out a little bit. I, all I can figure from watching it is just that Lucas Leva is a better passer than any of their center backs, and they would rather right. him be on the ball and be kind of the engine that's driving the team and, and making the decisions and picking out the passes. Uh, and so I think they just trust him to get the ball and move it forward, either bringing it up himself or passing it into maybe tighter positions than they would trust any other center back to do. So talking about the engine, can we deduce that Lazio's key men are perhaps those men in the middle? It's Lieva, yes. Luis Alberto, Linkovic, Savage. Yeah, I would I would say those three are kind of ever-present fixtures for this team. Luis Alberto dealing with some injuries, but I think we'll be will be good to go for this one. And he is the other one who can sort of find that pass. If there's a, a like a yard gap between two defenders, he can thread that needle really, really well. So him looking in for Correa, for Immobile, the aforementioned, I think that's kind of a, a, a sequence of Pepe Reina, still in goal, playing it to Lucas Leva, Lucas Leva trying to feed of Luis Alberto or uh, Sergei Milikovic-Savich, who then plays it in for the attackers. You have runners running off, and that's how you uh, create some opportunities. And if not, then you look for uh, players out wide. The other one to mention there would be uh, Adam uh, Marusic, who will be playing left wing back, but is right-footed, as Atalata found out when he cut inside and hit a screamer. So their wing backs are also more than capable of scoring some goals themselves. Joe, it is now incumbent upon you to tell us about Bayern Munich. Never heard of them. Um, <laughs> they, they had a, the last action we saw them in at the time of recording was that snow draw 3-3 against uh, Bielefeld, which is a bit of a wild game. Uh, they'll have some time now to have adjusted from hot weather to cold weather, I'd imagine. So this will be a different uh, setup here. Tell us about Bayern how they got to this point, how good they are, yada, yada. Club World Cup champions Bayern Munich. I mean, they did beat Tigres in that final in Qatar. They are, uh, they are top of the Bundesliga right now, which is not surprising what? to anyone, including, including the three of us. We Say all expect so. that. Every year we seem to get the same thing because Bayern Munich are filthy good. Right now, they are dealing with a host of injuries. Uh, they finished top of Group A, I guess I should mention that briefly. They finished top of Group A in the group stage with 16 points, beating Atletico Madrid once, drawing with them once, beating Salzburg and Lokomotiv Moscow you know, twice. So all four of those games were wins for Bayern Munich. Right now, they do have a lead at the top of the Bundesliga, but they're missing some big pieces. They're missing Benjamin Pavard, who has COVID. Uh, they're missing Thomas Muller, who has COVID as well. He might be back. That's kind of an X factor for Bayern Munich in this game, at least in my mind. Thomas Muller might be back in time for that, you know, first leg next week, but I don't really know. I don't think that's been announced yet to the public. Serge Gnabry picked up a thigh injury at the Club World Cup. Douglas Costa is out with a with a foot injury as well. So that's four key players. Not necessarily four starters, but at least two or three starters and four overall key rotation players for Bayern Munich. But they're so deep outside of losing Pavard at right back, which Taylor, you and I have talked about before, some of the difficulties that they have with Saar playing as their right back. It might have to be Joshua Kimmich. But even if we set that aside, Bayern Munich are so filthy good. I still think they're one of the favorites to win this entire competition, especially if they can get healthy between now and you know the, the quarterfinals or the semifinals. They play a lot of 4-2-3-1, but if Thomas Muller is out, I could see Hansi Flick using another central midfielder and playing more of a 4-3-3 that's still very attacking-minded, very possession-oriented. 
But in a perfect world for Bayern Munich, it's Joshua Kimmich and maybe Leon Goretzka in midfield with Thomas Muller ahead of them, Robert Lewandowski up top, and then any two fast wingers on the outside. That could be Leroy Sané. That could be Douglas Costa when healthy. I mean, there's uh, Serge Gnabry. There, there are even more options than those. And then it's an extra dose of fast in the form of left back Alfonso Davies coming up that left wing. Bayern overall might be the fastest team in Europe. They're willing to go direct. They're also willing to hold on to the ball. They're going to be really hard for Lazio to deal with. Uh, and all the key players you mentioned there, Joe, you didn't pick out Eric Chupo moting um, You know, the, the man doing the tour of the world's biggest clubs, PSG, <laughs> Bayern and Stoke, of course. Um, that's interesting. Uh, the one that strikes me here as being a real potential difference maker is Joshua Kimmich, who, who uh, came on uh, in, in the draw with Bielefeld and switched with Saar. Um, is, is he... Do you think that's like a key thing? Because he seems he seems to me to be abundantly important when when Bayern tend to play. No, I think that's a really great point, Ryan. Joshua Kimmich and David Alaba. I want to throw him in there too. They're both these really versatile players, right? They can both play in so many different spots. With Alaba, we've seen him play left back in the past for Bayern Munich. Now that Alfonso Davies is there, he shifted to play left center back in their back four. Earlier, you know, over the last couple of weeks, David Alaba has played as a defensive midfielder because Joshua Kimmich has had to move wide or just to get that rotation in midfield. So depending on where Alaba is playing and where Joshua Kimmich is playing, I think when Kimmich is in midfield and Alaba is at center back, Bayern Munich are at their strongest. But just depending on injuries, depending on health for the rest of the squad, that could be a real factor in deciding where those players move on the field against Lazio. Taylor? Be real with me for a second. Is there a world in which Bayern Munich do not win this game? This game? Yes. The entire fixture? No. Uh, I, I think this game with Lazio can cause Bayern problems, especially with the issues that Joe mentioned. If Lazio, like they're not, they're not a soft team, which isn't a surprise when we talk about Lazio, but they're a team that can deal with setbacks. They can deal with having to make adjustments. I think they play as a unit. They've played together for so long that they have lots of experience. And with some of the issues with Bayern, there's a decent chance that they can keep this nil-nil, that they can maybe get a goal, that they can hold Bayern to maybe only one goal, maybe no goals. We'll <laughs> see. Uh, but I think overall, Bayern will have enough because they can swarm Lazio. I think they can overwhelm. I think they will probably pretty re- be successfully resistant to Lazio's press if and when they do go that route. So I think just the the depth Bayern do have and the technical ability they have to handle things like a high press if and when that happens, to handle the physicality if and when that happens. I think overall, Bayern get out of this one. But this one might be a little bit tighter than people would expect at maybe halftime of the first leg. Oh, by the way, I forgot to mention, is there any um, personnel that Lazio have signed recently you want to talk about? <laughs> none, none that I would love to talk about. I did see the headline that they had signed the grandson of Mussolini, uh, which has been met with much frustration by the fan base, uh, not just because of who he is, but because they're aware of what that coverage is then going to be. I would argue that if you don't want that coverage, maybe don't sign him. It's unfair to go with, you know, like what your grandparents did shouldn't uh, label you in a certain way. But in Italy, maybe it can. I mean, all those uh, left-wing Guardian reading uh, Lazio fans in in the curva, I'm sure they're very offended by, uh, <laughs> yeah. by the accusations that are put on them, right? Yeah, yeah, I think that was definitely who was who was uh, <laughs> upset and frustrated by these things. <laughs> anyway, moving on, Joe. Uh, I'm not sure how much more you want to say about this game, but um, for me, Joe, Lazio, of all the teams remaining in this competition, are the ones, with all due respect to them, that I feel have the least chance of progressing. Is that fair? Yeah, yeah. Particularly I, with who they're facing, but in general I, as well. I think it is fair, and it feels harsh because I haven't seen an overwhelming amount of Lazio this season. I appreciate, Taylor, your insight there. But 
I put in my notes, this feels like the most lopsided round of 16 matchup to me. Maybe in mm-hmm. hindsight, that's actually Barcelona PSG. Mm-hmm. But in terms of name recognition, in terms of overall squad talent, this feels like the most lopsided matchup. I think if Lazio is smart, I think they should try to pack it in defensively because going to toe-to-toe with Bayern Munich feels like a really bad idea. But if that's their strength, if their strength is getting high up the field and pressing and holding onto the ball a little bit, maybe it's best for them to stick with their identity and try to outgun Bayern Munich. But even just that sentence sounds so absurd to me. I don't really see a way that Lazio win this leg or the tie. Um, but who knows? I've been I've been wrong before and it will happen again. I think I think if they are able to hold on, if they were able to like like spring a, a massive surprise, I think it's because of the precision that they'll bring. Like watching them play at times, they're just a very like forgive me, this is lazy, but like they remind me of a like stereotypical Italian team in that it's very technical, like it's very quick passes into tight spaces that are then passed out of pretty successfully, and they keep the ball moving. I think they all have the the kind of like equal level of technical precision you don't have that one player that has to get the ball that has to find his way through that they're building all around so there is some like diffusion of responsibility in a good way but I still think even with that said we're not like it's you guys are correct to say that there's a huge talent gap here and uh, Lazio definitely have an uphill battle ahead of them and watch Lazio win this game 1-0 uh, hey, next Tuesday know. at 3 p.m. Eastern. We're going to move on know. and talk about um, Atalanta taking on Real Madrid. Uh, that's the Wednesday game, uh, one of the Wednesday games at 3 p.m. Eastern on Wednesday, right after these important messages. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Today's episode is brought to you by our old friends, Mac Weldon. Wouldn't it be nice if we could have things both ways, like a zero-calorie cheeseburger, internet ads in March that weren't just reminders to do your taxes, a dog that never needs walking after midnight when it's cold, a Manchester United that is consistently good instead of their current scattershot approach? Well, we tend to think of clothing as an either-or situation as well. People think looking sharp means starchy Oxfords and stiff chinos rather than effortless comfort. But it's possible to have it both ways. Mack Weldon makes timeless apparel with modern performance fabrics for guys who want to look and feel sharp without sacrificing comfort. From their light-as-air underwear to innovative anti-odor tees and versatile yet comfortable pants, Mack Weldon has a full range of clothes that never go out of style. I got a few things recently, including a long-sleeve polo, which I love, uh, maybe the most comfortable t-shirt, which I also love, and my new favorite sweatpants, the Ace sweatpant. It's exactly what I described above, comfort and versatile, but still stylish. It's the type of sweatpant I can wear to pick up my kids from daycare and not think, I'm now wearing sweatpants in public. The other parents will judge me. Now I just think, judge away, nerds, because you will never be this comfortable unless you're also wearing a pair, in which case, high five. Mack Weldon is not flashy. It's just classic, always in style, and made from the world's most comfortable performance materials. They're designed to fit both your style and the demands of modern life. So get timeless looks with modern comfort from Mack Weldon. Go to MacWeldon.com and get 20% off your first order with promo code TSS. That's M-A-C-K-W-E-L-D-O-N.com, promo code TSS to get 20% off your first order. Thank you to Mack Weldon for sponsoring today's episode. All right, gentlemen, Atalanta taking on Real Madrid. Taylor, 
Yeah. Tell me about Atalanta, a dark horse last year, facing a, a perennial Champions League favourite here. How did they get to this point and what are, what are they playing like at the moment? Uh, confusing is my answer across the board. <laughs> uh, they got here by finishing second in their group uh, behind Liverpool, only by two points. But again, the record is confusing because they're crushed at home by Liverpool 5-0. Then they defeat Liverpool at Anfield 2-0. They beat mm. Michelin 4-0 in their opening game of the Champions League group stage. They draw 1-1 with them in their penultimate. So it, it's it's you're never quite sure with Atalanta, and that extends to their form in Serie A. They're currently sixth level on points with Lazio and Napoli. Again, sixth sounds worse than it is because they're only, I think, three points behind Roma in third. But it has not been the sort of like consistent machine of a season that we've seen from Atalanta in the past. Part of that, I think, is the drama and fallout with Papu Gomez, who has obviously yeah. left. And part of that is just that teams have like sort of adjusted to what they bring. It's a little bit like the Leicester situation where teams struggle maybe mid-season to deal with what an opponent is doing. They have the offseason. Maybe there's a little bit of a break. Teams figure them out a little bit, and it requires adaptation and evolution. I think Atalanta are doing fine with that, but it's not quite that like surprise team that nobody sees coming and then finds a way to make something happen. I, I think Real Madrid will be very prepared for a difficult opponent, which is exactly what Atalanta will probably be. Well, uh, in, besides Castagna uh, and Papu Gomez, they've generally kept the band together yeah. from last year, haven't mm-hmm. they? Are you are you inferring there that pe- uh, they've been a bit figured out? Is that what well? I, no, I think it's like, it's like interesting because to me they still haven't at the same time that people know that they're going to play a back three. They know there's going to be positional rotation and players moving around to try to create overloads and the left wing back suddenly being a central midfielder and the central midfielder being a right forward and the right forward but. Coming the left wing back, like they're they're not opposed to moving people around, but I think defensively they're very good about getting everybody into the exact shape they need to be. I also think that they're very good about flying under the radar when it comes to the individual personalities within the team. If you do any search for best center backs in Serie A, best central midfielders, best attackers, you really will not get many Atalanta hits. It's a lot of the bigger names from a lot of the bigger clubs or big names with smaller clubs. But Atalanta, like you don't get a lot of love for, say, Jose Luis Palomino, who I think is an incredibly good center back, both on the ball and off the ball, winning it in the air, leading that line, but then can play with it as feet, can play those Tell long balls, can ping him in low. <laughs> I like Palomino a lot, man. And I just, I, I think this is an Atalanta team that, like, they, they're looked at as a, I think my understanding is they're looked at as a system squad. And so teams are maybe hesitant to take a player out of that system for fear that they then, without the system around them, won't function as well anymore. But as a result, they don't end up selling that many people, Ryan, to your point. And then they keep people like Josep Ilicic. He took time off at the end of last season for a number of different reasons, but now he's back to scoring goals. If he's not scoring, it's Duvan Zapata. Uh, if he's not scoring, it's Luis Muriel popping in to score. But Duvan Zapata has, has had his scoring boots on this season, I think, at one point, he was averaging a goal every 61 minutes. I think that's cooled off a little bit since then. But they just have that same Atalanta, like, uh, again, they've got a diverse group of players who are all very good when they need to be. There don't seem to be a ton of huge egos in this team, even though uh, Remo Freuler and Martin Daron would be forgiven for being a bit egotistical because they, those two central midfielders are fundamental to what this team is doing. They are mm. ever-present fixtures. And you mentioned Palomino there. I'm, I'm with you on that, but it's, uh, it's, it's his counter, counterpart. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, his counterpart, Christian Romero, who, who catches my eye and has caught my eye previously on loan from Juventus. You know, gets up there for the set pieces. Just seems, he seems like someone who 
Juventus should be using, frankly. I mean, th- th- we've talked about that before, right? How yeah. odd it is that they've chosen not to go with him. I-, I don't know if Christian Romero has picked up an injury, but he has not been as involved in the team. It has been the kind of the same back three of Rafael Toloi, Palomino, and then Berat Jimciti. I think I'm pronouncing that one, but probably not right. Uh, I, would, I would be surprised if they rotate away from that one uh, for this game in the Champions League. All right, Joe. Tell us all about their opponents, Real Madrid. How did they get to this point? Uh, are they going to win this whole thing? Are they going to get past Atalanta first? So Real Madrid finished first in Group B with just 10 points. It was a really weird group. They lost to Shakhtar Donetsk yeah. twice. They drew with Borussia Mönchengladbach once and beat them once. And then they beat Inter Milan twice. So, I don't know, just a really strange set of results for Real Madrid, which kind of encapsulates their season in some ways. They've had... Some really good stretches of performances. Right now, they're second in La Liga. Six points behind Atletico Madrid. They have a game in hand, as Taylor mentioned earlier. They haven't been in the best of form recently, but they have won four of their last five games. They've got a lot of injuries right now. Sergio Ramos, Marcelo, Danny Carvajal, Eden Hazard, other guys on the squad, too, that maybe aren't quite as big of names as those players. But they're missing a lot of players, like Bayern Munich is missing a lot of players. I think in in this game, and in this tie... That's going to put them in an interesting spot. Zinedine Zidane has them in a 4-3-3. And it's a lot of names that we know. It's a lot of names that we know, but now they just lack some of the depth. It's Luka Modric and Toni Kroos in front of Casemiro in midfield. Those are the Zidane's first choice central midfielders. It's Karim Benzema up top. It's Vinicius on the left wing. It's uh, Marco Asensio on that right wing. So it's a lot of players that we know. Rafael Varane, Nacho at center back. Lucas Vasquez deputizing at right back while uh, Carvajal is out at times. It's a squad we know, but man, this game's going to be so wonky just because of how Atalanta play with their possession setup, which Taylor, you detailed that fluidity really well. Also the defensive side of things. Atalanta under Gasparini love to manmark. They manmark more than almost any other major team in Europe. They manmark more other than, other than Leeds and Matias Almeida's San Jose Earthquakes. They manmark, I think, just in that top tier of teams, which is a weird place to be, and it, it gets to that weird scoreline differential that we see with Atalanta sometimes. Sometimes they win games five to nothing. Sometimes they lose games three to nothing because they get pulled apart. And so I just went through Real Madrid play this 4-3-3. They like to keep the ball. They have a lot of names that we know and we know what they do. But I almost wonder if all that's going to go away just because of how strange Gasparini, Gasparini's Atalanta team actually is. It does seem like there's two very disparate styles going on here. I think you're quite right there. And um, we, we covered the uh, Real Madrid game against Valencia at the weekend on the weekend review. And Graham and I noticed how it was a very, very impressive performance, albeit Valencia yeah. were pretty poor. But it has been an, a, an, a quite up and down season. And I think one thing that certainly Real Madrid fans say is that Carvajal will be really missed because he, I think he lasted less than half an hour uh, yeah. in this game. He's, and he's, uh, he was out for a long time prior to that. And he's, um, you know, when he hasn't played... The argument has been that they've not been quite the uh, solid unit that they should be normally. So I'd, I'd argue, I'd, I'd ask you, Joe, whether he's a key man. But for me, the key men is the three in the middle you mentioned: Modric, Casemiro, and Kroos. Who just when they run a game, they run a game, right? Yeah, and and still, right? They're still doing that. I looked up the ages of some of these guys. Luka Modric is in his mid thirties. Tony Kroos is in his early thirties. Casemiro is just in his late twenties. But it feels like this. This trio has been around forever, right? Mm. It feels like they've been with Real Madrid forever. And it's amazing to me how good they still are. Will they have the athleticism as a collective unit to deal with Atalanta and to shift and to move and to cover and to track and all of those things? I really don't know. I don't know if they'll be able to handle Atalanta. But on the ball, 
if they can get free from their markers at times, if they can find space, if Luka Modric can, can get the ball and be his press resistant self, he's 95th. He's in the 95th and 92nd percentile with uh, central midfielders in terms of progressive carries and dribble. So he's great with the ball. He's great at moving forward with the ball in midfield. If those three players are on and they can get free and find space, I think this game and this tie tilts in Madrid's favor. If not, Atalanta, I think, are going to be in a really good spot. My long-standing theory, Joe, about Real Madrid is that whenever Tony Kroos has a good game, Real Madrid do. Yeah. There's a direct correlation there. And there's, when he has a bad game, they have a bad game. And I, I wonder if he's, he's like the linchpin of this whole thing. If he gets enough space to do Tony Kroos things, then that's the key. Is that, is that fair? No, I think that's a really great point, Ryan. Tony Kroos is the, not necessarily the metronome, but he conducts this midfield. He is the passer. He is the guy who's going to be spraying those balls into Kareem Benzema, into Vinicius on the left wing, into Asensio on the right wing, into Hazard when he's fit and healthy, even though I don't think that's going to be the case for these games against Atalanta. Tony Kroos is the guy in midfield in possession. If he has time and space, Madrid are hard to stop. If he doesn't, then they're in a tough spot. So basically what we're saying is Gasparini just needs to man-mark Tony Cruz, and that should solve the entire <laughs> equation? I think that's going to happen, though. I think that's actually going to happen. So it, it might work out for Atalanta. Uh, I should I should also note, Ryan, uh, I did some quick checking. I, I appear to have just pulled like the three games that Christian Romero did not participate in recently when I was looking at their footage because he has started 68% of games, uh, and including one on Valentine's Day, one on February 6th. So also a decent chance Christian Romero is in there, but I think... We still have that idea that like they just rotate through because looking at where he plays, sometimes it's yeah. center back, like center center back, sometimes it's right center back, sometimes it's left center back. So I think we may see him in there. I still think it won't really change what Atalanta do, which is uh, cause problems, swarm when they want to, create overloads, and then somehow Ilicic scores despite being not particularly fleet of foot. Give him an angle, he'll find a <laughs> shot. Well, yeah, he's so good. Romero he's did, so good. Um, Romero did play against Cagliari at the weekend, as you mm-hmm. mentioned it, Taylor. Um, he can do a robust challenge. So what, what say we get Gasparini to put one on Tony Kroos in the first five minutes? <laughs> Problem solved. <laughs> yeah, I think that, let's just have that happen. Let's, uh, let's let Tony Kroos <laughs> know that things are going to be uh, happening all day for him, and we'll see how he responds to it. Uh, okay, so this is a difficult <laughs> question for you then, Taylor, because uh, obviously, as I mentioned it, or we mentioned, there's uh, sev- uh, two different styles going on here. I- I'd say a pretty unpredictable game, but give yep. it your best shot. I'll go with I'll go with Atalanta in the first leg. I think Madrid are still going to have their eye on La Liga. They're still going to be worried about what they do this weekend and and figuring things out for their league fixtures, uh, which maybe just means they have slightly less time to prep for this game against Atalanta. Uh, who aren't going to really change up what they do. So I think anytime you have a team that might try to adjust their approach so that they can better handle what their opponent is going to be doing versus a team that are kind of going to be set in their ways and doing what they do, I tend to give the advantage to the team that will have that extra consistency coming in. Though, I should note, this was my argument for why Leipzig would handle Liverpool, and here we are. So, grain of salt there, but I lean Atalanta in this one. That might just be uh, heart overhead, though. Taylor Rockwell betting against Real Madrid in the Champions League, no less. Here we go. Joe, what do you say? I'm going <laughs> to use my, my one pass and not predict this game. You guys wouldn't let me get out of Mbappe versus Erling Holland yesterday, so I'm bringing it back today. I'm copping out. But I do want to give two X-Factors here because I, I just have no idea how this game is going to go. But outside of that Tony Kroos, Tony Kroos X-Factor, I've got two more. One of them is is Rafael Varane. With how Atalanta defend and how aggressive they are and how much they do man-mark through midfield and out wide at times as well, 
I think there's a good chance that Rafael Varane is left unmarked by Atalanta, and he is so good on the ball. He's so good at driving forward with the ball and making the right decisions in possession. If he can get forward and do some dangerous things in the attacking half in Atalanta's defensive half, that could cause real problems for the Italians. And then the second X factor I want to hit real quick is is Josep Ilicic. We talked about him already a little bit, but I don't know if Nacho and, and Ferlan Mendy on the left side of Madrid's defense can deal with him. I don't know if Vinicius can track back and help with that enough. I don't know if Casemiro and Toni Kroos can get over there and help those guys either. So I'm going to be watching for how effective Ilicic is in this game as well. Good stuff, Joe. And by the way, we don't give you a pass on these things. You, you can just say it's a draw if you like. <laughs> okay, it's a draw. It's a draw. It's an 8-8 draw. 8-8 <laughs> draw from Joe Larry. Wow. I like the sound of that. <laughs> Why don't we move on to the final game of our, of our tranche of games once again oh to slip that one in. Um, Borussia Mönchengladbach taking on yep. Manchester City on Wednesday at the same time as this Real Madrid-Atalanta game. Taylor, tell me yeah. about Borussia Mönchengladbach in a bit of mixed form at the moment. Uh huh. Pretty much every team I'm previewing seems to be in mixed form and could <laughs> be very good or could be very bad. Yeah, Gladbach especially in a strange situation. Uh, Marco Rosa, we've talked about this already on the show this week and maybe last. Uh, Marco Rosa has confirmed he will be moving to Borussia Dortmund at the end of the season to take over the managerial position there while managing a club that are ahead of Borussia Dortmund and having a, a, a just fine season. Excuse me, they're just behind Borussia Dortmund at time of recording on goal difference. But there's still a decent chance that Gladbach, uh, still alive in Europe, and could maybe pip Dortmund to that final Champions League place. I think Dortmund would not love that, given the amount of players they could lose as a result. But that's not what Marco Rosa is worrying about right now. He's worrying about his own team, who got here by finishing second in their group behind Real Madrid, ahead of Shakhtar and Inter. And again, we go with the kind of inconsistency of form. They start off their group stage by draws with Madrid and Inter. Then they get two wins against Shakhtar, who, lest we forget, finished third in this group. And then they lose their remaining games against Madrid and Inter Milan, but they still manage to go through on uh, goal difference to Gladbach. But that's representative of their season. Sometimes very good and blowing the doors off of Borussia Dortmund. Sometimes struggling to create anything against Wolfsburg, who have a very good defense, don't get me wrong. But seeing the kind of lack of attacking flair that Gladbach had in that recent uh, 0-0 draw was slightly disconcerting heading into this Champions League game, I will say. Yeah, and just to touch on that Group B, which uh, was Real Madrid, Gladbach, uh, Shakhtar, and Inter Milan. Mm -hmm. Very interesting group in that all the teams lost two games. And it's quite rare, I'd say, for Real Madrid, they topped the group with two losses. You don't see that every year. So, no. and, uh, and, and Gladbach had uh, the same two losses on that. They would finish two points behind Real Madrid uh, in that group. So uh, they also held their own in a very difficult group. Um, who, who are the key men for them, Taylor? Sure. Uh, it, it will depend a little bit on who is fit and ready to go. They were without Marcus Taram this past weekend. They were out uh, without Dennis Zakaria this weekend, both due to knee injuries, both expected to be back. And Zakaria would be the key one in my mind for this team because he can be part of a midfield two uh, against Wolfsburg. They were in defensively a, a like kind of empty bucket 4-4-2 uh, that the wide midfielders could step up and it would almost be a 4-2-4 at times, but then they would drop back. I think part of that mild change in shape is because you don't have Zachariah, who can be their pivotal holding midfielder, can also be a center back for them if they want to go that route. That is what they did in their 4-2 win over Borussia Dortmund. They dropped Zachariah in. They went with more of a 3-4-1-2, 
and it worked, although they did still concede. This past weekend, as I said, it was more of a 4-4-2 with Lars Stindl joining uh, Playa up top. So they could go either way, but I think a lot of it will depend on how fit and ready to go uh, Dennis Zakaria is. He'll likely be partnering Florian Neuhaus, uh, who, if people aren't familiar or haven't seen him, I have yet to see Joe Lowry and Florian Neuhaus in the same location (laughs) at the same time. And if you throw some glasses on Neuhaus, the similarities uh, increase. Uh, So that's one thing to keep an eye on is where is Joe when this game happens? (laughs) And is Joe quietly keeping his career as a professional footballer under wraps? Joe, maybe going to be in Germany uh, on, in next week at any point? Uh, as a matter of fact, yeah, I just confirmed that flight earlier today. Taylor, that's that's <laughs> some sort of coincidence, isn't it? Yeah, probably. See, probably. there we go. Now I'm wondering. Now I'm wondering. <laughs> Joe runs into a, a phone booth and comes out and uh, Florian Neuhaus joins the game. Uh, but until that happens, uh, what we should talk about is maybe some of the things that Gladbach like to do when they're in possession. They do like to build out of the back using their goalkeeper. So Man City uh, will probably try to pressure them there and see what they can create. Uh, I laugh because I know it's an annoying thing Ryan does not love when teams insist on continuing to play out of the back. Uh, And maybe Gladbach could be punished for that one in this game. But they do some interesting rotations to facilitate players getting open. For example, if it's uh, Rami Bensabaini starting at left back slash left wing back, he will get pretty far forward. And it's sometimes one of those central midfielders, usually Florian Neuhaus, who will then drop in and becomes almost that like the like a left center back a third center back there and there's just like positional changes that I think are designed to open up players in areas that you wouldn't expect them to be getting the ball so how man city try to nullify that I think probably via high pre- high pressing up the field mm-hmm. but then we have Gladbach able to play out of that pretty quickly. They, they're re- really good with the kind of one- and two-touch wall passes down the line. They will thread that needle. They will risk on occasion, like that pass not coming off and being cut out, to try to get quick one-twos down the, down the sidelines to create then uh, better attacking opportunities. So I think we'll see some rotation and some positional switching from Gladbach. I think we'll see a lot of tight passing. I don't think we'll see them pressing particularly high up the field. They're certainly capable of doing that. But against Man City, who are obviously a very strong opponent, I think they will probably drop in just a little bit more. Maybe they, they will go with a, a an aggressive press once the ball crosses midfield. But until then, I would expect them to kind of consistently look to regre- regroup and keep that shape. Taylor, forgive me if this goes beyond uh, the excellent research you've done, but can, can you speak about Brian Bolo? Because, you know, not, not that long ago, he was tipped as like the next big thing. And he yeah. seems to be a bit of a bit part player for, for Gladbach. Am I right in thinking that? I mean, I, th- I think the, a part of that, like where he has the lack of success with Schalke, comes down to the injury history. He moves to Gladbach, has the kind of strong season, but I think is to some extent still dealing with injuries here and there. And then I think to some extent it's just that Gladbach have so many different options. Marcus Taram doesn't play on the weekend uh, due to injury, I think, uh, but is such an important attacker to them. But you've got Playa, you've got Lars Stindl, and I think they've just got depth there. Jonas Hoffman can play up top as well. So I think the depth means they don't have to rely on one or two key players. But for a player like Briel Embolo, who I think needs reps, he needs consistency and would like uh, consistent starts, I think that probably is where some of the develop isn't, development isn't happening or why he is not as regularly in that starting 11 as often. Joe, Manchester City. Uh, they topped Group C. They've won quite a lot of games in a row. They're never going to lose again. Have I got it about right? 
Uh, everything but that last part. Pep Guardiola mentioned something recently <laughs> I read about, you know, the loss will come. And it will come for Manchester City, but they have won their last 17 games in all competitions, which is a record for an English first division team. They finished first in Group C in the Champions League group stage, beating Olympiacos twice, beating Marseille twice, and then beating Porto once and drawing with them once. Pep has been tinkering a little bit this year. Earlier in the mm. season, Manchester City played out of a 4-2-3-1, which is a little bit unusual for them. Pep has been noted in in kind of not really liking that formation, but that's what they were using for a while. And at a certain point, a couple months ago, Pep said it was after their 1-1 draw with West Brom in December. He just didn't like how his team was playing. They weren't dominating games like he wanted them to be. So Pep and the rest of the coaching staff at Man City hit the refresh button a little bit. He said, quote, We had to come back to our game, move the ball quicker, do more passes, stay in position, run less with the ball, do it together. We don't have a specific player to win games. We have to do it together. And whatever he told his players and what he shifted to tactically, which I can talk about in just a minute, it it's totally worked. The team, again, has won 17 games in a row. Or not lost 17 games in a row. Nope, strike that. The first one was right. In all competitions. <laughs> so they are... They are flying right now, and they are dominating the in the Premier League, and I expect them to play very well in this game as well. So tell us a bit more about this shift in style. My understanding is it's a bit less intense. They've sort of adapted more to the, to the difficulties of this season. They've been pressing less. They've been pressing less this season in general, and so I don't know if that's a direct change, but from that pep quote I just read, it seems like he has emphasized you know, saving legs a little bit and saving legs for the attack and for their possession shape. And I've seen two possession shapes from Manchester City recently. One of them is a 3-3-4. So I guess I should back up. They'll start out of a 4-3-3 in most situations. Or they'll start out of a 4-the-back shape. And that's the shape they'll defend in. But then as soon as they get possession, either in their own half or even in the attacking half, things start rotating. Things start shifting. So shape number one that I've seen them use recently is a 3-3-4 with Joao Cancelo coming from right back into midfield and playing next to Rodri, sometimes next to one of the actual central midfielders as well, Bernardo Silva, Ilkay Gundogan. I mean, different options here for City. The other possession shape is a 2-3-5 or a 3-2-5 with Cancelo and sometimes Zinchenko, sometimes Kyle Walker also joining that midfield group. And so then it's the fullbacks and it's Rodri in midfield. And they've been working for Pep. He's got his wingers out wide again. He's creating space in the attack. They know how to play out of that 2-3-5 shape. That's what they've been using more recently. And that's what Pep used at Bayern Munich. His teams have used it in the past. And the players know how to execute it, and they're doing it right now. They've created a lot of chances. They have the most XG in the Premier League. And then they're counterpressing really well right now as well. They've allowed the fewest expected goals in the league as well. And that comes from them just pressing aggressively. Not necessarily always high pressing, but as soon as they lose the ball in the attacking half, they're swarming like the best Pep teams have done in the past. And they're winning the ball back, and they're creating chances again. So our friend Graham Ruthven, when we uh, w- uh, after the Tottenham game last weekend, he wrote a piece in which he uh, labelled Jalcancello as the key man, and he, for the reasons you mentioned, the way he pushes up and joins the midfield, and uh, he, he played on left against uh, Everton midweek, Everton. I believe. Yep. So um, do, w- would you would you agree with that? And he, he, him being a key man, I mean, they've got lots of key men to be fair, haven't mm-hmm. they? They do, and Kevin De Bruyne and Sergio Aguero are now back and fit. De Bruyne got on the field against Everton. Aguero was on the bench against Everton earlier this week. But Joao Cancelo is huge for this team. His ability to step into midfield and not just be an okay, decent central midfielder. You know how we talk about, wow, Ederson could maybe play in midfield somewhere, or Manuel Neuer could play you know, defense for some Bundesliga team. Those aren't true, by the way. But Joao Cancelo can play as a good right back. He can play as a good left back. 
and he can play as a legit central midfielder. He's been so important for them in making this system tick. Ilkay Gundogan, again, I want to mention his name as well, is in that same category. He's been on an absolute tear in this calendar year. Since the start of 2021, he scored nine goals. He's looked rejuvenated after that West Brom game and into 2021. So Gundogan occasionally pushing forward into the attack and joining that front line or staying deeper and pulling the strings in midfield. And then Cancelo moving from fullback into midfield. Both of those guys are huge for Pep right now. Joe, I wanted to ask like a, a fairly silly question, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Like, like Let's go with FIFA for a moment. If you're setting up a team to handle Pep Guardiola's Man City, like what do you think works well? Because I find myself confused by this fixture because I could see Gladbach like trying to sit and block off like zones and just getting destroyed. I could see them doing that and frustrating Man City. I could see them pressing Man City and having success, but I could also see Man City passing through that. I find them like Manchester City under Pep to be just such a a good team at so many different things. I don't feel like there's one sort of like generic way to cause them problems because Pep is so good at figuring that stuff out. So I'm wondering if you have ideas on where there are vulnerabilities or what an opponent like Gladbach, who have good players, but not next-level players across the board, might be able to find some success. So if I'm Marco Rose, I am, first of all, hoping for divine intervention. Yep. That's big. That's, that's number one for me. I'd spend the most time on that, probably. But then, <laughs> then it is, it's, a, it's a tough question. Because it's a risky strategy. <laughs> I, it is. It's a risky strategy. It might, it might pay off, though. I think if you're munching Gladbach, the biggest weakness, as I see it with Manchester City right now, is... City's ability to defend in their own defensive third. Because if you're Pep Guardiola, you don't want to ever be defending in your defensive third. You want to always be defending in the attacking half after you lose the ball. You defend by having the ball, and then you defend in the, in the five seconds after you lose the ball. Pep's teams are not, tech, like, not usually the most athletic defensively, are not usually the best 1v1 def- defenders, not made up of the best 1v1 defenders, not made up the best aerial defenders either. So if you're Munch and Gladbach, I think the area that you have circled on your tactics board is the final third. But then it's a question of how you get there, right? If we say City are vulnerable in their own defensive third, in Munch and Gladbach's attacking third, do you get there by going all out and playing with the ball, breaking through City's high pressure or their counter pressure, and then possessing in the, in the attacking half? Or do you get there by sitting deeper and countering? And I don't know what the best method is. If you're Munch and Gladbach, with the way City are counterpressing right now, maybe it's best to try to play with the ball and try to get it and possess in City's own half and get into that final third. But if you think there's any doubt that you can't play with the ball and that you're going to get roasted on the counter, I think you have to pack it in and absorb pressure and then try to counterattack yourself. So I I just kind of talked through all the options and I didn't actually pick one, which I think is something I am often prone to doing (laughs) because I don't know the answer. But those are the two approaches. You want to get into the final third, especially against Manchester City. They're weakest there, but how you get there... I just don't know because it seems borderline impossible right now. If uh, Marco Rose is hoping for divine intervention, maybe that comes in the form of Gundogan not playing. He wasn't in yeah. the squad against Everton. <laughs> and I think he might be an injury doubt for this one. So maybe that's his, uh, what, he's, what he's holding on to because, as you mentioned there, with the amount of goals he's got, I think the stat is he scored more than 14 Premier League teams in 2021. Crazy. Crazy. <laughs> he's definitely scored more than Embolo, who I believe has only scored three, going back to your original question, Ryan. So maybe that lack of uh, goal-scoring consistency is a problem for Gladbach. Joe, I appreciate that answer. Like, I still, like, don't, I still don't fully have my head around what Gladbach will do is I think what I'm struggling with because same they, yeah. they, they could go with the counter and I think Marcus Taram can be instrumental going down the left side for Gladbach in 
sort of like quickly transitioning and catching Man City out, but they also have the technical ability to get numbers forward, to move it around, and maybe try to like take some of the the pressure off and put City on their heels a little bit. I I do think that we shouldn't read anything into what happens this weekend because they're playing Mainz, and I think they probably will rest a few people. So I won't be surprised if they don't look particularly strong on the weekend, but then do for Man City because they rested Zakaria, for example, or Turam again, for example. Uh, so I think I would say to listeners, watch and see in the, in the first maybe 10 minutes if you see Gladbach sitting off a little bit more and keeping a, a sort of roughly rigid 4 because I think that tells us they're going to try to absorb pressure and hit on the counter. If from kickoff you see Gladbach go charging up field, then I think we know that maybe they're going to be a little bit more aggressive and we can then kind of see how that goes for them. I, I think, Taylor, we're actually maybe looking at this all wrong. Not that I disagree with anything you just said, but I've just kind of realized as you're talking, I don't think, I don't think it's what Borussia Mönchengladbach will do. I think it's what Manchester City will let them do. I don't think Mönchengladbach can come into this game with a defined approach and just live and die by that approach. Mm -hmm. I think Manchester City are going to come out, they're going to dominate the ball as they do in the Premier League, and they're going to say, okay, Mönchengladbach, you have to sit deep because we are going to take the ball and run it down your throat over and over and over again. So actually, I think my answer to your initial question that you asked me a few minutes ago is, I think Mönchengladbach will sit deep in their own half, maybe not deep, but at least in their own half and defend in that 4-4-2-4-2-4 block because not necessarily that's what Marco Rosa wants them to do, but because that's what Manchester City want them to do. Feels like we're erring on the side of Manchester City having the edge in this uh, fixture, <laughs> gentlemen, I think. Um, it's interesting to think that Man City, if I'm not mistaken, have been the favourites in the Champions League to win the whole thing in the past three seasons, and obviously haven't done so. Taylor, is this yeah. the time? I mean, see, this is the confusing thing is Man City do get tripped up by teams we don't see coming. Last season, it was Lyon. I cannot remember if Gladbach have had success against Man City in the past. I know they have met previously. Uh, I do not remember how that went down. But, you know, a couple seasons ago with a different manager, I don't know how much that actually matters. Um, I don't know, because this is this is a such a strong Man City at this current point. In the past, we've seen them have that hype, but maybe not be performing at domestic level. At least last season, that would be the case. I think they will be okay in this one. I don't know if if they win this one handily. I don't know if they're able to even keep a clean sheet. But I think over the course of two legs, I expect Man City uh, to be okay. And I think part of that is because I don't see, to Joe's point, I don't see Man City tinkering too much. That's when we've seen Pep maybe be his own worst enemy and try different things to really throw off the opponent, and he ends up throwing off his own team. I don't know how much of that he'll be doing in this game against Gladbach, so I give the advantage to Man City for sure. Joe? I think Man City win this game. I think they win this this tie. I think they make a deep run in this tournament. Bold. (laughs) <laughs> well, I had, to, I, have, I had to have one bold one after I always try to weasel my way out, you know? It is very bold of you to pick the team that spent a billion dollars on players that they might <laughs> Thank have you. success in the Champions League, Joe. I, I commend no. your bravery. Isn't that... I thought we were talking about Man City yesterday with Oil City Money FC or whatever it was. You know, I well, thought that's no just relation, Manchester no City. <laughs> You're right. My bad. <laughs> well, gents, that's the uh, remaining Champions League round of 16 first leg games very much covered. Thank you so much for your services on this podcast. And thank you, listener, for uh, joining us on this journey. Um, I'm going to go and do a Belgian, I think. It's been a long week. Taylor, what are you up to now? <laughs> I forget what... 
Uh, I'm not going to go watch in Bruges, so I'm not going to do a Belgian. <laughs> I am instead going to talk to uh, Joe's uh, usual co-host, Jordan, of MLS Assist fame, about the She Believes Cup and the USA's 1-0 win over Canada last night. It was not as as impressive or as emphatic as I thought it would be, but I also might just be slightly negative because I, I think I expected it to be like 3-0 at the half, and it wasn't. So we're going to find out if it was a good performance, a bad result, all those good things uh, with myself and Jordan. That'll be later on this afternoon. Good stuff. I like the Canadian National Anthem, by the way. It's a fun one. <laughs> oh, Canada. <laughs> Joe, how about you? Yeah, I'm going to wait till 3 a.m. and then pull a Belgium myself. So I just got to wait. <laughs> Okay, I've forgotten what your version of that is, so I'm just going to use my imagination. (laughs) (laughs) All right, thank you, gents. It's been a blast. We'll catch you next time. Thank you very much, guys.